indoor water park. I was probably seven years old, and I was in line for the big red slide with my big sister. And my sister told me about it. It was fast, it was steep, the corners were really sharp. But what made me the most nervous was that it was almost completely pitch black. You couldn't see where you're going, and you couldn't really anticipate where you would be turning next. When I finally reached the top of the stairs, I could see from a distance people entering one or two at a time into the slide. And I would watch the pool below just to make sure that the ratio of people going into the slide and coming out was a perfect one-to-one. -one. And of course, everyone who went in at the top of the slide came out at the bottom. I knew that when I sent myself down the slide, I would end up in the pool eventually, but what happened in those 20 seconds between getting in the slide and coming out left me very fearful. And finally, the girl in front of me willingly flung herself into this dark abyss, and now it was just me in front of this big, dark circle. And social protocol demanded that the next person go down the slide so that the line can keep moving. So I had a quick decision to make. But when the moment came, I didn't have the courage to face my fear. I let my sister go without me, and I took the easy, bright yellow slide down to the pool. Now, I'm an adult now, or at least a much older kid, and I don't find the red slide scary anymore. In fact, I think it's pretty fun. But that same tendency to fear that I had at the water park, I still carry with me today. Only now my fears just look different. We all have this tendency to fear. For you, it might be a fear of failure. You're afraid of disappointing people that you love and look up to. For you, it might be rejection. You're afraid of what would happen if others knew the real you, the you that only you know. And we fear because we look at the chaos of the world and believe that we have to face our troubles alone. We look to ourselves as a source of comfort and control, but we don't find it. God is no stranger to our fears, and he's not put off by them. The most spoken command in scripture is fear not. And why? For I am with you. God gives us a reason not to fear, and the reason is himself. This is what Paul was reminding the Philippians of, and it's what he reminds us of as well. Paul says in verse 12 of our text, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is saying that even amid the threat of imprisonment and death, he doesn't need to fear. And even amid our own trials and tribulations, we don't need to fear. And why is that? Because God is there, and he is advancing the gospel. And it's not in spite of our trials, but God actually works through the trials to accomplish his purpose. And therefore, he calls us to a life of courage. Because God is advancing the gospel, therefore, we can have courage. There are two main ways that this text calls us to be courageous. The first is in proclaiming the gospel, 
and the second is in living the gospel. So first, because God is advancing the gospel, we have courage to proclaim the gospel. Look here at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So why in the first place were these friends of Paul afraid to speak the word? To answer that question, we need to know one, what is the word that they were speaking? And two, to whom were they speaking it? So Paul already said that the word that they were speaking was the gospel, which simply means good news. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright often says that when Paul uses this small but loaded word, he's talking about the fact of certain events that happened and because of which everything is different. It's the fact that Jesus, who is the prophesied Messiah of Israel, was crucified and rose from the dead and is therefore the Lord who reigns as king over all creation. So the gospel itself, as Paul uses the word, is this narrative of the life and the work of Jesus. This is why sometimes he actually uses the word Christ in place of the word gospel, like he does in verse 18. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So again, why were these friends of Paul so afraid to tell people that Jesus is Lord? Well, remember that Paul is writing in the context of ancient Rome, where the national catchphrase is, Caesar is Lord. If you lived in the decade that Jesus was born, you could have walked past these stone calendars with inscriptions that said, the birthday of the god Caesar Augustus was the beginning of the good news or gospel that came through him to the world. So obviously, the gospel of Christ was in direct conflict with the gospel of Rome. And we remember which of the two had the prisons and the armies, the lions and the gladiators. And yet, when Paul's friends saw that God was advancing the gospel through him and through his suffering in prison, what does it say? It says they became confident in the Lord. They were persuaded by the experience of Paul that they could trust God, that he would advance the gospel through them, and it is this confidence in God that set their hearts aflame with courage. Romanian pastor Richard Wurmbrand spent 14 years of his life in communist prisons in the decades following World War II. He was arrested on more than one occasion simply for believing in Jesus and publicly proclaiming his faith in the gospel. He tells about the persisting faith of the underground church in Romania, which had thousands of believers who knew the cost of following Jesus and often paid a brutal price. So the communists would publish and distribute these um, atheistic propaganda pamphlets to try to show how foolish the Bible and Christianity was. They would ridicule and criticize scripture in books like the Comical Bible, as they called it. And the persecuted Romanians actually rejoiced over this because real Bibles were rare in those days. Sometimes 
the only verses that you had access to were in these books. They were quoted in these books designed to mock the faith and brainwash Christians. And Wurmbrand called these books unspeakably beautiful. So God used this oppressive atheist regime to bring many Romanians to Christ and to encourage countless more in their faith. And brothers and sisters, God is advancing the gospel today in the same power and by the same spirit that he was in Paul's day. And it's not primarily because of the courage of outspoken Christians, missionaries, and evangelists. God is pleased with our courage and he works through our courage, but ultimately the burden of the advance of the gospel rests on the almighty Holy Spirit. So God does not need you to advance the gospel and bring the gospel to the world, but he chose you. He chose you, the church, to be his instrument in bringing the good news of the reign of Christ to the world. This doesn't, however, mean that you don't need courage sometimes. Courage is not always the absence of fear, but it's acting despite being afraid. Sometimes you'll feel led to tell someone who doesn't know Jesus what your hope is. Your coworker or classmate likes to sit next to you at lunch and you've talked about your family and your friends, your interests, your ambitions, Maybe even the fact that you go to church has come up, but you haven't really talked about Jesus. And I'll admit that as an introvert, this is really terrifying for me. I have to remind myself that God isn't just up in the bleachers, you know, cheering me on. Good job, Ian, you can do it, I hope. No, he, he goes before me and he prepares hearts. He stands behind me and gives me courage to speak when my voice is shaky. He's above me, below me, within me, and around me. And as with Moses, his message is not speak for you will be eloquent, but it's speak for I am with you. Just as God's initiative in the advancement of the gospel gives us courage to proclaim the gospel, it also gives us courage to live out the gospel. So the second way that the text calls us to be courageous is in our lives. Because God is advancing the gospel, we have courage to live out the gospel. And I see two ways that Paul emphasizes courage in these latter verses. First, Christ gives us courage in death. And second, Christ gives us courage in life. Read with me starting in verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, often in life, to avoid shame is to receive honor. The amazing thing is that for Paul, the opposite of shame is not that Paul will be honored, but that Christ will be honored. The King James Version says magnified. So Paul is enamored with Jesus. He wants 
to see him made great. He wants people to see just how awesome, how beautiful and excellent and precious it is to know Jesus. That is it for Paul. All of his life centers around this, the man Jesus. And that is why he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Both outcomes of his imprisonment will satisfy his ultimate longing, which is that Christ is made great. So not even death can stop the gospel advancing through Paul. And this gives Paul courage to live the gospel. His abiding in Christ motivates his love and obedience to him in all things. Paul says in verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And this is a hard saying, but it's big if true. Is Paul saying here that death is better than life? That it's better that your soul be divorced from the body God gave you in order for you to be free from the world? Absolutely not. Death is not our friend, and in fact, Paul calls death the last enemy. And it's an enemy because it tears asunder what God has united, namely our bodies and our souls. No, death, death is not better than life, but Christ is. The blessings of life are God's gracious gift, and we're right not to despise them, but Paul says that Christ is better even than these and it's not even close. All of your loves find fulfillment in him, the man Jesus ascended to the Father. Heavenly communion with Christ is better than life in the present age, but it doesn't even stop there. In fact, we cannot live in the fullness of what God has created us for if we're simply disembodied souls in heaven forever. And that is why the Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection will be infinitely better than both the present life and the heavenly life. And this is why we don't fear death. It is in this truth that we have the courage to live the gospel and to submit all things to our Savior and Lord. So how else does God give us courage to live the gospel? Finally, I want to look at verse 27. And many scholars agree that verse 27 is actually Paul's main point in the whole letter to the Philippians, and that is unity in the faith. Only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when you read that word worthy, don't think of it to mean like deserving of the gospel or of Christ, but something more like fitting or appropriate. So only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything. Remember, the Philippians were citizens of a very patriotic Roman colony. 
And Paul says that to live as a, a citizen of the gospel means simply two things, being united in the faith and having courage in the face of opposition. So one thing that we can take from this passage is that the unity of the church is truly a result of the gospel. Remember that the gospel according to Paul is this story of Jesus that changes everything. One result of the gospel, for example, is the forgiveness of sins. And another result is the church. The church united is a source of courage for believers. We're not united by common interests, but a common faith, and really a common person, that is Jesus. Because what is the church if not the body of Christ? The hope of being with Christ in death gave Paul courage. How much more are we encouraged by the reality that Christ is with us here and now in his church, in his body? Aristotle taught that courage is a virtue. And like all virtues, it must be lived in moderation. Some of us have personalities which might tend towards timidity or cowardice, and others of us might have personalities that tend toward quarrelsomeness or brashness, which is often mistaken uh, as courage. But the fact is that true courage is the antidote for both ends of the spectrum. When the disciples saw the money changers in the temple, they were silent. They knew that it was wrong, but they didn't have the courage to take a stand or say anything about it. So Jesus showed them what true courage was by flipping the tables and driving out the money changers and the thieves. In the same way, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, Peter whips out his sword and he attacks one of the men. And Jesus doesn't commend him for his courage. He actually rebukes him for being brash. So Jesus shows Peter the true path of courage by saying, put your sword in its sheath. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus calls us to have courage in every situation, whether that means taking a stand or putting away your sword. Now, when I think of courage, I often think of the Joan of Arcs, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers, the Richard Wurmbrands, and all these heroes who risked their lives for what they believed. And we all know what we would have to do to be courageous in these extraordinary situations, but don't we always think at the back of our mind, would I really have the courage to risk my life? Most of you will not be asked to deny Christ or else suffer death. Some of you might, but what I want to suggest is that you can have much more confidence that you will honor Christ in your body at those big moments of truth if you've already been disciplined and practicing courage in the small things. And one of the best ways I think that the church can do this is by giving priority to the people who are lowly, the things which are unpopular, the tasks that are less rewarding. 
This is how we can live out the gospel, by practicing courage in the small things. So when someone asks you to drive them to the airport, even though you were kind of looking forward to hanging out with your friends, Christ will honor the courage it takes to forget yourself and honor him in the less rewarding task. Or when you told your neighbor that you would attend their daughter's dance recital, but someone else later invites you to see your favorite band in concert, consider that the courageous thing to do is to keep your original word. And it might take courage when a conversation drifts to gossip uh, to stop the conversation or to change the subject. And if this sounds impossible, to be courageous every day and in everything, you're right. Only Christ has perfect courage, perfect fearlessness, even today. And we see this most clearly on the cross. But the truth is that the Holy Spirit gives him to you so that his courage is truly yours and that the Father is pleased with your courage. When we daily remind ourselves that Christ is our supreme love, our highest aim, and that in him God is advancing the gospel, we will be a people who find gospel courage and spirit-filled boldness not only in the big moments, but even in the everyday ordinary of our lives. So when we come before these big red slides, we'll remember that God is already in the dark tunnel. And in fact, it's there that he's most eager to be with us. May we be a church that is enamored with Christ, reminding each other week in and week out that our hope is in the God who works all things for our good. And even as we continue to love and care for this present world, may we never lose sight of the life to come. When Christ will be with us in the new heavens and earth, where we shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make us afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord of creation, you are the sovereign of history. Kings and rulers are in your hand, and you guide all things to accomplish your purposes, which you have declared from the beginning. You move heaven and earth for our good, for your children. Give us courage, Father, to speak the word without fear. Give us courage to live out the gospel in our everyday lives and send us the Spirit to unite us around your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.